Section 26 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Street Finders or Collectors. These men, for by far the great majority are men, may be divided, according to the nature of their occupations, into three classes. One, the bone grubbers and rag gatherers, who are indeed the same individuals, the pure finders, and the cigar end and old wood collectors. Two, the dredger men, the mudlarks, and the sewer hunters. Three, the dustmen and nightmen, the sweeps and the scavengers. The first class go abroad daily to find in the streets, and carry away with them such things as bones, rags, pure, or dog's dung, which no one appropriates. These they sell, and on that sale support a wretched life. The second class of people are also as strictly finders, but their industry, or rather their labour, is confined to the river, or to that subterranean city of sewerage upon which the Thames supplies the great outlets. These persons may not be immediately connected with the streets of London, but their pursuits are carried on in the open air, if the sewer air may be so included, and are all, at any rate, out-of-door avocations. The third class is distinct from either of these, as the labourers comprised in it are not finders, but collectors or removers of the dirt and filth of our streets and houses, and of the soot of our chimneys. The two first classes also differ from the third in the fact that the sweeps, dustmen, scavengers, and so on, are paid, and often large sums, for the removal of the refuse they collect, whereas the bone-grubbers and mudlarks and pure-finders and dredger-men and sewer-hunters get for their pains only the value of the articles they gather. Herein, too, lies a broad distinction between the street-finder, or collector, and the street-buyer. Though both deal principally with refuse, the buyer pays for what he is permitted to take away, whereas the finder or collector is either paid, like the sweep, or else he neither pays nor is paid, like the bone-grubber, for the refuse that he removes. The third class of street collectors also presents another and a markedly distinctive characteristic. They act in the capacity of servants, and do not depend upon chance for the result of their day's labour, but are put to stated tasks, being employed and paid a fixed sum for their work. To this description, however, some of the sweeps present an exception, as when the sweep works on his own account, or, as it is worded, is his own master. The public health requires the periodical cleaning of the streets, and the removal of the refuse matter from our dwellings, and the man who contracts to carry on this work is decidedly a street collector, for on what he collects or removes depends the amount of his remuneration. Thus a wealthy contractor for the public scavengery is as entirely one of the street folk as the unskilled and ignorant labourer he employs, and in many instances has become rich on the results of his street employment for of course the actual workmen are but as the agents or sources of his profit. Even the collection of pure dog's dung in the streets 
if conducted by the servants of any tanner or leather dresser either for the purposes of his own trade or for sale to others might be the occupation of a wealthy man deriving a small profit from the labour of each particular collector the same may also be said of bone grubbing or any similar occupation however insignificant and now abandoned to the outcast were the collection of mud and dust carried on by a number of distinct individuals that is to say were each individual dustman and scavenger to collect on his own account there is no doubt that no one man could amass a fortune by such means while if the collection of bones and rags and even dog's dung were carried on in the large way that is to say by a number of individual collectors working for one headman even the picking up of the most abject refuse of the metropolis might become the source of great riches the bone grubber and the mudlark the searcher for refuse on the banks of the river differ little in their pursuits or in their characteristics excepting that the mudlarks are generally boys which is more an accidental than a definite distinction the grubbers are with a few exceptions stupid unconscious of their degradation and with little anxiety to be relieved from it they are usually taciturn but this taciturn habit is common to men whose callings if they cannot be called solitary are pursued with little communication with others i was informed by a man who once kept a little beer shop near friar street southwark bridge road where then and still he thought was a bone grinding establishment that the bone grubbers who carried their sacks of bones thither sometimes had a pint of beer at his house when they had received their money they usually sat he told me silently looking at the corners of the floor for they rarely lifted their eyes up as if they were expecting to see some bones or refuse there available for their bags of this inertion perhaps fatigue and despair may be a part i asked some questions of a man of this class whom i saw pick up in a road in the suburbs something that appeared to have been a coarse canvas apron although it was wet after a night's rain and half covered with mud i inquired of him what he thought about when he trudged along looking on the ground on every side his answer was of nothing sir i believe that no better description could be given of that vacuity of mind or mental inactivity which seems to form a part of the most degraded callings the minds of such men even without an approach to idiocy appear to be a blank one characteristic of these poor fellows bone grubbers and mudlarks is that they are very poor although i am told some of them the older men have among the poor the reputation of being misers it is not unusual for the youths belonging to these callings to live with their parents and give them the amount of their earnings the sewer hunters are again distinct and a far more intelligent and adventurous class but they work in gangs they must be familiar with the course of the tides or they might be drowned at high water they must have quick eyes too not merely to descry the objects of their search but to mark the points and bearings of the subterraneous roads they traverse in a word to know their way underground there is moreover some spirit of daring in venturing into a dark solitary sewer the chart being only in the memory and in braving the possibility of noxious vapours and the by no means insignificant dangers of the rats infesting these places 
the dredgermen the finders of the water are again distinct as being watermen and working in boats in some foreign parts in naples for instance men carrying on similar pursuits are also divers for anything lost in the bay or its confluent waters one of these men known some years ago as the fish could remain at least so say those whom there is no reason to doubt three hours under the water without rising to the surface to take breath he was it is said web-footed naturally and partially web-fingered the king of the two sicilies once threw a silver cup into the sea for the fish to bring up and retain as a reward but the poor diver was never seen again it was believed that he got entangled among the weeds on the rocks and so perished the dredgermen are necessarily well acquainted with the sets of the tide and the course of the currents in the thames every one of these men works on his own account being as it were a small master which indeed is one of the great attractions of open-air pursuits the dredgermen also depend for their maintenance upon the sale of what they find or the rewards they receive it is otherwise however as was before observed with the third class of the street finders or rather collectors in all the capacities of dustmen nightmen scavengers and sweeps the employers of the men are paid to do the work the proceeds of the street collection forming only a portion of the employer's remuneration the sweep has the suit in addition to his sixpence or shilling the master scavenger has a payment from the parish funds to sweep the streets though the clearance of the cesspools and so on in private houses may be an individual bargain the whole refuse of the streets belongs to the contractor to make the best of but it must be cleared away and so must the contents of a dustbin for if a mass of dirt becomes offensive the householder may be indicted for a nuisance and municipal by-laws require its removal it is thus made a matter of compulsion that the dust be removed from a private house but it is otherwise with the soot why a man should be permitted to let soot accumulate in his chimney perhaps exposing himself his family his lodgers and his neighbours to the dangers of fire it may not be easy to account for especially when we bear in mind that the same man may not accumulate cabbage leaves and fish-tails in his yard the dustmen are of the plodding class of labourers mere labourers who require only bodily power and possess little or no mental development many of the agricultural labourers are of this order and the dustman often seems to be the stolid ploughman modified by a residence in the city and engaged in a peculiar calling they are generally uninformed and no few of them are dustmen because their fathers were the same may be said of nightmen and scavengers at one time it was a popular or rather a vulgar notion that many dustmen had become possessed of large sums from the plate coins and valuables they found in clearing the dustbins a manifest absurdity but i was told by a marine store dealer that he had known a young woman a dustman's daughter sell silver spoons to a neighbouring marine store man who was not very particular the circumstances and character of the chimney sweeps have since parliament put down the climbing boys undergone considerable change the sufferings of many of the climbing boys were very great 
they were often ill-lodged ill-fed barely clad forced to ascend hot and narrow flues and subject to diseases such as the chimney-sweeps cancer peculiar to their calling the child hated his trade and was easily tempted to be a thief for prison was an asylum or he grew up a morose tyrannical fellow as journeyman or master some of the young sweeps became very bold thieves and housebreakers and the most remarkable as far as personal daring is concerned the boldest feat of escape from newgate was performed by a youth who had been brought up a chimney-sweep he climbed up the two bare rugged walls of a corner of the interior of the prison in the open air to the height of some sixty feet he had only the use of his hands knees and feet and a single slip from fear or pain would have been death he surmounted a parapet after this climbing and gained the roof but was recaptured before he could get clear away he was moreover a sickly and reputed a cowardly young man and ended his career in this country by being transported a master sweep now in middle age and a man well to do told me that when a mere child he had been apprenticed out of the workhouse to a sweep such being at that time a common occurrence he had undergone he said great hardships while learning his business and was long from the indifferent character of his class ashamed of being a sweep both as journeyman and master but the sweeps were so much improved in character now that he no longer felt himself disgraced in his calling the sweeps are more intelligent than the mere ordinary labourers i have written of under this head but they are of course far from being an educated body the further and more minute characteristics of the curious class of street finders or collectors will be found in the particular details and statements among the finders there is perhaps the greatest poverty existing they being the very lowest class of all the street people many of the very old live on the hard dirty crusts they pick up out of the roads in the course of their rounds washing them and steeping them in water before they eat them probably that vacuity of mind which is a distinguishing feature of the class is the mere atony or emaciation of the mental faculties proceeding from though often producing in the want of energy that it necessarily begets the extreme wretchedness of the class but even their liberty and a crust as it frequently literally is appears preferable to these people to the restrictions of the workhouse those who are unable to comprehend the inertia of both body and mind begotten by the despair of long-continued misfortune are referred to page three hundred and fifty seven of the first volume of this work where it will be found that a tin man in speaking of the misery connected with the early part of his street career describes the effect of extreme want as producing not only an absence of all hope but even of a desire to better the condition those however who have studied the mysterious connection between body and mind and observed what different creatures they themselves are before and after dinner can well understand that a long-continued deficiency of food must have the same weakening effect on the muscles of the mind and energy of the thoughts and will as it has on the limbs themselves occasionally it will be found that the utter abjectness of the bone-grubbers has arisen from the want of energy begotten by intemperate habits 
the workman has nothing but this same energy to live upon, and the permanent effect of stimulating liquors is to produce an amount of depression corresponding to the excitement momentarily caused by them in the frame. The operative, therefore, who spends his earnings on drink, not only squanders them on a brutalising luxury, but deprives himself of the power, and consequently of the disposition, to work for more, and hence that idleness, carelessness, and neglect, which are the distinctive qualities of the drunkard, and sooner or later compass his ruin. For the poor wretched children who are reared to this the lowest trade of all, surely even the most insensible and unimaginative must feel the acutest pity. There is, however, this consolation. I have heard of none, with the exception of the more prosperous sewer-hunters and dredger-men, who have remained all their lives at street-finding. Still there remains much to be done by all those who are impressed with a sense of the trust that has been confided to them in the possession of those endowments which render their lot in this world so much more easy than that of the less lucky street-finders. Bone-grubbers and rag-gatherers The habits of the bone-grubbers and rag-gatherers, the pure or dog's-dung collectors, and the cigar-end-finders are necessarily similar. All lead a wandering, unsettled sort of life, being compelled to be continually on foot, and to travel many miles every day in search of the articles in which they deal. They seldom have any fixed place of abode, and are mostly to be found at night in one or other of the low lodging-houses throughout London. The majority are, moreover, persons who have been brought up to other employments, but who from some failing or mishap have been reduced to such a state of distress that they were obliged to take to their present occupation, and have never after been able to get away from it. Of the whole class, it is considered that there are from 800 to 1,000 resident in London, one half of whom, at the least, sleep in the cheap lodging-houses. The government returns estimate the number of mendicants' lodging-houses in London to be upwards of 200, allowing two bone-grubbers and pure-finders to frequent each of these lodging-houses, there will be upwards of four hundred availing themselves of such nightly shelters. As many more, I am told, live in garrets and ill-furnished rooms in the lowest neighbourhoods. There is no instance on record of any of the class renting even the smallest house for himself. Moreover, there are in London during the winter a number of persons called trampers, who employ themselves at that season in street-finding. These people are in the summer country labourers of some sort, but as soon as the harvest and potato-getting and hop-picking are over, and they can find nothing else to do in the country, they come back to London to avail themselves of the shelter of the night asylums or refugees for the destitute, usually called straw-yards by the poor. For if they remained in the provinces at that period of the year, they would be forced to have recourse to the unions, and as they can only stay one night in each place, they would be obliged to travel from ten to fifteen miles per day, to which in the winter they have a strong objection. They come up to London in the winter, not to look for any regular work or employment, but because they know that they can have a nightly shelter, and bread night and morning for nothing during that season 
and can during the day collect bones, rags, and so on. As soon as the straw yards close, which is generally about the beginning of April, the trampers again start off to the country in small bands of two or three, and without any fixed residence, keep wandering about all the summer, sometimes begging their way through the villages and sleeping in the casual wards of the unions, and sometimes, when hard-driven, working at haymaking or any other light labour. Those among the bone-grubbers who do not belong to the regular trampers have been either navvies or men who have not been able to obtain employment at their own business, and have been driven to it by necessity as a means of obtaining a little bread for the time being, and without any intention of pursuing the calling regularly. But, as I have said, when once in the business, they cannot leave it, for at least they make certain of getting a few halfpence by it, and their present necessity does not allow them time to look after other employment. There are many of the street-finders who are old men and women, and many very young children who have no other means of living. Since the famine in Ireland, vast numbers of that unfortunate people, particularly boys and girls, have been engaged in gathering bones and rags in the streets. The bone-picker and rag-gatherer may be known at once by the greasy bag which he carries on his back. Usually he has a stick in his hand, and this is armed with a spike or hook, for the purpose of more easily turning over the heaps of ashes or dirt that are thrown out of the houses, and discovering whether they contain anything that is saleable at the rag-and-bottle or marine-store shop. The bone-grubber generally seeks out the narrow back-streets, where dust and refuse are cast, or where any dustbins are accessible. The articles for which he chiefly searches are rags and bones. Rags he prefers. But waste metal, such as bits of lead, pewter, copper, brass, or old iron, he prizes above all. Whatever he meets with that he knows to be in any way saleable, he puts into the bag at his back. He often finds large lumps of bread which have been thrown out as waste by the servants, and occasionally the housekeepers will give him some bones on which there is a little meat remaining. These constitute the morning meal of most of the class. One of my informants had a large rump of beef bone given to him a few days previous to my seeing him, on which there was not less than a pound of meat. The bone-pickers and rag-gatherers are all early risers. They have all their separate beats or districts and it is most important to them that they should reach their district before anyone else of the same class can go over the ground. Some of the beats lie as far as Peckham, Clapham, Hammersmith, Hampstead, Bow, Stratford, and indeed all parts within about five miles of London. In summer time they rise at two in the morning, and sometimes earlier. It is not quite light at this hour, but bones and rags can be discovered before daybreak. The grubbers scour all quarters of London, but abound more particularly in the suburbs. In the neighbourhood of Petticoat Lane and Rag Fair, however, they are the most numerous, on account of the greater quantity of rags which the Jews have to throw out. It usually takes the bone-picker from seven to nine hours to go over his rounds, during which time he travels from twenty to thirty miles, with a quarter to a half hundredweight on his back. In the summer he usually reaches home about eleven of the day, and in the winter about one or two. On his return home he proceeds to sort the contents of his bag. 
he separates the rags from the bones, and these again from the old metal, if he be lucky enough to have found any. He divides the rags into various lots, according as they are white or coloured. And if he have picked up any pieces of canvas or sacking, he makes these also into a separate parcel. When he has finished the sorting, he takes his several lots to the rag shop, or the marine store dealer, and realises upon them whatever they may be worth. For the white rags he gets from tuppence to threepence per pound, according as they are clean or soiled. The white rags are very difficult to be found, they are mostly very dirty, and are therefore sold with the coloured ones at the rate of about five pounds for tuppence. The bones are usually sold with the coloured rags at one and the same price. For fragments of canvas or sacking, the grubber gets about three farthings a pound, and old brass, copper and pewter about fourpence, the marine storekeepers say fivepence, and old iron one farthing per pound, or six pounds for a penny. The bone grubber thinks he has done an excellent day's work if he can earn eightpence, and some of them, especially the very old and the very young, do not earn more than from tuppence to threepence a day. To make tenpence a day, at the present price of rags and bones, a man must be remarkably active and strong. Aye, and lucky too, adds my informant. The average amount of earnings, I am told, varies from about sixpence to eightpence per day, or from three shillings to four shillings a week, and the highest amount that a man, the most brisk and persevering at the business, can by any possibility earn in one week is about five shillings but this can only be accomplished by great good fortune and industry the usual weekly gains are about half that sum in bad weather the bone grubber cannot do so well because the rags are wet and then they cannot sell them the majority pick up bones only in wet weather those who do gather rags during or after rain are obliged to wash and dry them before they can sell them the state of the shoes of the rag and bone picker is a very important matter to him, for if he be well shod, he can get quickly over the ground, but he is frequently lamed and unable to make any progress from the blisters and gashes on his feet, occasioned by the want of proper shoes. Sometimes the bone grubbers will pick up a stray sixpence or a shilling that has been dropped in the street. Quote, the handkerchief I have round my neck said one whom I saw. I picked up with a shilling in the corner. The greatest prize I ever found was the brass cap of the knave of a coach-wheel, and I did once find a quarter of a pound of tobacco in Sun Street, Bishopsgate. The best bit of luck of all that I ever had was finding a cheque for twelve pounds fifteen shillings lying in the gateway of the morning coach-yard in Titchbourne Street, Haymarket. I was going to light my pipe with it. Indeed, I picked it up for that purpose." and then saw it was a cheque. It was on the London and County Bank, 21 Lombard Street. I took it there, and got ten shillings for finding it. I went there in my rags, as I am now, and the cashier stared a bit at me. The cheque was drawn by a Mr. Nib, and payable to a Mr. Cox. I did think I should have got the odd fifteen shillings, though. End quote. It has been stated that the average amount of the earnings of the bone-pickers is sixpence per day, or three shillings per week, being seven pounds sixteen shillings per annum for each person. It has also been shown that the number of persons engaged in the business may be estimated at about eight hundred.
Hence the earnings of the entire number will amount to the sum of £20 per day, or £120 per week, which gives £6,240 as the annual earnings of the bone-pickers and rag-gatherers of London. It may also be computed that each of the grubbers gathers on an average £20 weight of bone and rags, and reckoning the bones to constitute three-fourths of the entire weight, we thus find that the gross quantity of these articles gathered by the street finders in the course of the year amounts to three million seven hundred and forty four thousand pounds of bones and one million two hundred and forty thousand pounds of rags between the london and st catherine's docks and rosemary lane there is a large district interlaced with narrow lanes courts and alleys ramifying into each other in the most intricate and disorderly manner insomuch that it would be no easy matter for a stranger to work his way through the interminable confusion without the aid of a guide resident in and well conversant with the locality the houses are of the poorest description and seem as if they tumbled into their places at random foul channels huge dust heaps and a variety of other unsightly objects occupy every open space and dabbling among these are crowds of ragged dirty children who grub and wallow as if in their native element none reside in these places but the poorest and most wretched of the population and as might almost be expected this the cheapest and filthiest locality of london is the headquarters of the bone grubbers and other street finders i have ascertained on the best authority that from the centre of this place within a circle of a mile in diameter there dwell not less than two hundred persons of this class in this quarter i found a bone grubber who gave me the following account of himself Quote, i was born in liverpool and when about fourteen years of age my father died he used to work about the docks and i used to run on errands for any person who wanted me i managed to live by this after my father's death for three or four years I had a brother older than myself who went to France to work on the railroads and when I was about 18 he sent for me and got me to work with himself on the Paris and Rouen railway under Mackenzie and Brassy who had the contract. I worked on the railroads in France for four years till the disturbance broke out and then we all got notice to leave the country. I lodged at that time with a countryman and had £12 which I had saved out of my earnings. This sum I gave to my countrymen to keep for me till we got to London, as I did not like to have it about me, for fear I'd lose it. The French people paid our fare from Rouen to Havre by the railway, and there put us on board a steamer to Southampton. There was about fifty of us altogether. When we got to Southampton, we all went before the mayor. We told him about how we had been driven out of France, and he gave us a shilling apiece. He sent someone with us, too, to get us a lodging, and told us to come again the next day. In the morning the mayor gave every one who was able to walk half a crown, and for those who were not able he paid their fare to London on the railroad. I had a sore leg at the time, and I came up by the train, and when I gave up my ticket at the station, the gentleman gave me a shilling more. I couldn't find the man I had given my money to, because he had walked up and I went before the Lord Mayor to ask his advice. He gave me two shillings sixpence. I looked for work everywhere, but could get nothing to do, and when the two shillings sixpence was all spent, 
I heard that the man who had my money was on the London and York Railway in the country. However, I couldn't get that far for want of money then, so I went again before the Lord Mayor, and he gave me two more, but told me not to trouble him any further. I told the Lord Mayor about the money, and then he sent an officer with me, who put me into a carriage on the railway. When I got down to where the man was at work, he wouldn't give me a farthing. I had given him the money without any witness being present, and he said I could do nothing, because it was done in another country. I stayed down there more than a week, trying to get work on the railroad, but could not. I had no money, and was nearly starved, when two or three took pity on me, and made up four or five shillings for me, to take me back again to London. I tried all I could to get something to do, till the money was nearly gone, and then I took to selling lucifers, and the fly-papers that they use in the shops, and little things like that. But I could do no good at this work, there was too many at it before me, and they knew more about it than I did. At last I got so bad off I didn't know what to do, but seeing a great many about here gathering bones and rags, I thought I'd do so too. A poor fellow must do something. I was advised to do so, and I have been at it ever since. I forgot to tell you that my brother died in France. We had good wages there, four francs a day, or three shillings fourpence English. I don't make more than threepence or fourpence, and sometimes sixpence a day, at bone-picking. I don't go out before daylight to gather anything, because the police takes my bag and throws all I've gathered about the street to see if I have anything stolen in it. I never stole anything in all my life. Indeed, I'd do anything before I'd steal. Many a night I've slept under an arch of the railway when I hadn't a penny to pay for my bed, but whenever the police find me that way, they make me and the rest get up and drive us on and tell us to keep moving. I don't go out on wet days, there's no use in it, as the things won't be bought. I can't wash and dry them because I'm in a lodging house. There's a great deal more than a hundred bone-pickers about here, men, women and children. The Jews in this lane and up in Petticoat Lane give a good deal of victuals away on the Saturday. They sometimes call one of us in from the street to light the fire for them or take off the kettle, as they must not do anything themselves on the Sabbath, and then they put some food on the footpath or throw rags and bones into the street for us, because they must not hand anything to us. There are some about here who get a couple of shillings worth of goods, and go on board the ships in the docks, and exchange them for boards and bits of old canvas among the sailors. I'd buy and do so too if I only had the money, but can't get it. The summer is the worst time for us. The winter is much better, for there is more meat used in winter, and then there are more bones. Note, others say differently, end note. I intend to go to the country this season and try to get something to do at the haymaking and harvest. I make about two shillings sixpence a week, and the way I manage is this. Sometimes I get a piece of bread about twelve o'clock, and I make my breakfast of that and cold water. Very seldom I have any dinner. Unless I earn sixpence, I can't get any. And then I have a basin of nice soup, or a penn'orth of plum pudding and a couple of baked potatoes. At night I get a farthing worth of coffee, a halfpenny worth of sugar, and a penny farthing worth of bread, and then I have tuppence a night left for my lodging. I always try to manage that, for I'd do anything sooner than stop out all night. I'm always happy the day when I make fourpence, for then I know I won't have to sleep in the street. 
the winter before last there was a straw yard down in black jack's alley where we used to go after six o'clock in the evening and get a half pound of bread and another half pound in the morning and then we'd gather what we could in the daytime and buy victuals with what we got for it we were well off then but the straw yard wasn't open at all last winter there used to be three hundred of us in there of a night a great many of the dock labourers and their families were there for no work was to be got in the docks so they weren't able to pay rent and were obliged to go in i've lost my health since i took to bone-picking through the wet and cold in the winter for i scarcely any clothes and the wet gets to my feet through the old shoes this caused me last winter to be nine weeks in the hospital of the whitechapel workhouse the narrator of this tale seemed so dejected and broken in spirit that it was with difficulty his story was elicited from him he was evidently labouring under incipient consumption i have every reason to believe that he made a truthful statement indeed he did not appear to me to have sufficient intellect to invent a falsehood it is a curious fact indeed with reference to the london street finders generally that they seem to possess less rational power than any other class they appear utterly incapable of trading even in the most trifling commodities probably from the fact that buying articles for the purpose of selling them at a profit requires an exercise of the mind to which they feel themselves incapable begging too requires some ingenuity or tact in order to move the sympathies of the well-to-do and the street finders being incompetent for this they work on day after day as long as they are able to crawl about in pursuit of their unprofitable calling this cannot be fairly said of the younger members of this class who are sent into the streets by their parents and many of whom are afterwards able to find some more reputable and more lucrative employment as a body of people however young and old they mostly exhibit the same stupid, half-witted appearance. To show how bone-grubbers occasionally manage to obtain shelter during the night, the following incident may not be out of place. A few mornings past, I accidentally encountered one of this class in a narrow back lane. His ragged coat, the colour of the rubbish among which he toiled, was greased over, probably with the fat of the bones he gathered, and being mixed with the dust it seemed as if the man were covered with bird-lime his shoes torn and tied on his feet with pieces of cord had doubtlessly been picked out of some dustbin while his greasy bag and stick unmistakably announced his calling desirous of obtaining all the information possible on this subject i asked him a few questions took his address which he gave without hesitation and bade him call on me in the evening at the time appointed, however, he did not appear. On the following day, therefore, I made way to the address he had given, and on reaching the spot, I was astonished to find the house in which he had said he lived was uninhabited. A padlock was on the door, the boards of which were parting with age. There was not a whole pane of glass in any of the windows, and the frames of many of them were shattered or demolished. Some persons in the neighbourhood, noticing me eyeing the place, asked whom i wanted on my telling the man's name which it appeared he had not dreamt of disguising i was informed that he had left the day before saying he had met the landlord in the morning for such it turned out he had fancied me to be 
and that the gentleman had wanted him to come to his house, but he was afraid to go lest he should be sent to prison for breaking into the place. I found, on inspection, that the premises, though locked up, could be entered by the rear, one of the window frames having been removed, so that admission could be obtained through the aperture. Availing myself of the same mode of ingress, I proceeded to examine the premises. Nothing could well be more dismal or dreary than the interior. The floors were rotting with damp and mildew, especially near the windows, where the wet found easy entrance. The walls were even slimy and discoloured, and everything bore the appearance of desolation. In one corner was strewn a bundle of dirty straw, which doubtlessly had served the bone-grubber for a bed, while scattered about the floor were pieces of bones and small fragments of dirty rags, sufficient to indicate the calling of the late inmate. He had had but little difficulty in removing his property, seeing that it consisted solely of his bag and his stick. The following paragraph concerning the chiffoniers, or rag-gatherers of Paris, appeared in the London journals a few weeks since. Quote, the Fraternal Association of Rag-Gatherers, Chiffonniers, gave a grand banquet on Saturday last, 21st of June. It took place at a public house called the Pot Tricolore, near the Barrière de Fontainebleau, which is frequented by the rag-gathering fraternity. In this house there are three rooms, each of which is specially devoted to the use of different classes of rag-gatherers, one the least dirty, is called the Chamber of Peers, and is occupied by the first class, that is, those who possess a basket in a good state, and a crook ornamented with copper. The second, called the Chamber of Deputies, belonging to the second class, is much less comfortable, and those who attend it have baskets and crooks not of first-rate quality. The third room is in a dilapidated condition, and is frequented by the lowest class of rag-gatherers, who have no basket or crook, and who place what they find in the streets in a piece of sackcloth. They call themselves the Réunion des Vrais Proletaires. The name of each room is written in chalk above the door, and generally such strict etiquette is observed among the rag-gatherers that no one goes into the apartment not occupied by his own class. At Saturday's banquet, however, all distinctions of rank were laid aside, and delegates of each class united fraternally. The president was the oldest rag-gatherer in Paris. His age is eighty-eight, and he is called the emperor. The banquet consisted of a sort of ola podrida, which the master of the establishment pompously called gibelotte, though of what animal it was composed it was impossible to say. It was served up in huge earthen dishes, and before it was allowed to be touched, payment was demanded and obtained. The other articles were also paid for as soon as they were brought in, and a deposit was exacted as a security for the plates, knives, and forks. The wine, or what did duty as such, was contained in an earthen pot called the Petit Père Noir, and was filled from a gigantic vessel named la maricot. The dinner was concluded by each guest taking a small glass of brandy. Business was then proceeded to. It consisted in the reading and adoption of the statutes of the association, 
followed by the drinking of numerous toasts to the president to the prosperity of rag-gathering to the union of rag-gatherers and so on a collection amounting to six francs seventy-five centimes was raised for sick members of the fraternity the guests then dispersed but several of them remained at the counter until they had consumed in brandy the amount deposited as security for the crockery knives and forks End quote. End of section 26